I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5. A reading this morning comes from Galatians 5, the verses 1 through 15. And our text will be the verses 13 through 15. Hear the word of God. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And here begins our text. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this past week, while you and I went about our daily business, something truly remarkable happened in Perth. It made headlines all over the world. Dr. Ken Elliott, a surgeon, was finally brought back after seven years in captivity. Ken Elliott and his wife Jocelyn are originally from Perth. Since 1972, they had been living in Burkina Faso, a country in West Africa, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. They ran a small hospital of 120 beds, which they had built up themselves. He was the only surgeon available to a population of 2 million people. They were both kidnapped early in the morning in 2016 by Islamic jihadists connected to Al-Qaeda. 
This group specialized in fundraising for their cause through kidnapping, arms trafficking, and drugs. Dr. Elliot's wife was released after three weeks, but Dr. Elliot himself was held captive for seven more years. He was 81 when he was captured, and this week he was finally released. What motivated Ken and Jocelyn Elliott to spend so much of their lives in this terrible country? What motivated them to help so many people free of charge when others their age are well and truly into retirement? It's because they are Christians. They were not just there to provide medical help. They were there to spread the gospel. Not just to save people from physical affliction, but to point them to the only Savior who can grant true freedom. This gospel remained true even when they were kidnapped. That's because true freedom is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. But do we understand it ourselves? Ken and Jocelyn did. Do you? This afternoon, we'll, this morning, we'll consider that question. Do you understand what true freedom is? If so, you will serve one another. If not, you will devour one another. So let's look at our text together. It begins with the words, you were called to freedom, brothers. Obviously, here the brothers is inclusive in this context, he means brothers and sisters. This applies to us all. There are a number of premises underlying these words, however. First, if we are called to freedom, if we're called to freedom, that can only mean that by nature we are not free. And that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. In a second letter, the Apostle Peter writes, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So by nature, we are not free. By nature, we are bound by compulsive sinning. Everybody in that sense is born into slavery. Now this idea that people are by nature free was totally contradictory. This idea that people by nature are not free was totally contradictory to the dominant Greco-Roman concept, as well as today. If there's one thing that is treated as sacred in our culture, it is this idea that by nature, people are free. My body, my choice, right? Every work of popular culture assumes this as well. And it also assumes that the greatest good that could exist for anyone is that they liberate themselves from whatever is holding them back. But Scripture says, by nature, we are not free. After all, if we were, there would be no need to call us to freedom. The word called implies that freedom can only ever be given to you. And who does the calling? It's God. So freedom can only ever be given to you by God. God is the one who calls people to freedom in verse 13 of our text. And that sets the tone for the rest of it. But what freedom is he talking about? We've, we've encountered a similar concept before in verse 1 
of our reading, for freedom Christ has set us free. And now it comes back again. In verse 1, it was freedom from the law. And that's in the background here as well. By nature, we're obligated to keep the law of God. The command has always been, do this and you will live. But by nature, we are sinners. And that sin still afflicts us often. The flesh and body of sin, even when we're Christians. In Romans 7, Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And the law condemns that. The law condemns our sins. That's why you can never be right with God by keeping his law, no matter how hard you try. In fact, if you try, you will be put under a curse. That's what he said in Galatians 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So we're bound, not just by our sins, not just by our compulsions, but by the very law that condemns them. And that is why the gospel is such good news. Because Jesus came to free us from both. He came to free us from the curse of the law, and he came to free us from the compulsion to sin. Paul goes on to write about that in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's why Jesus came, to redeem us. During his first public sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah to show what he was doing, to explain what he was doing. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. See, Jesus is the one who gives true freedom. Jesus is the only one who can give us true freedom. And this freedom is never something you can earn. It is only ever something that can be given. And it can only ever be given by God. In fact, God has always been the only one who gave it. Even before he gave the law, he said to his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He introduces himself as the God who takes the initiative. But his idea of freedom is not the same as our idea of freedom. Our idea of freedom is not always Christian, even if we are followers of Christ. Is it not true that we often see freedom as being able to do what you want to do and then maybe to have faith added on to that. We're happy to have faith in our lives as long as we get to do all of the other things that we want to do as well. And ideally, we would like to hold on to both. Isn't that true? If we had to choose, what would we choose? Jesus calls us to a life of true freedom through faith in him. True freedom means that you are released from the law. You are released from its demands. You are released from its curses. Remember what we learned earlier in this letter, 
The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But the question is, now that we are justified by faith, how are we going to live? And that's the big question underlying our text. Paul says, yes, you were called to freedom, but now don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So he's warning us again, but now from a different angle. In, in uh, verse 1, he warned us, but he warned us against legalism. 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go and put yourself back under the law as if that's what makes you right with God. But here in verse 13, he is warning us, uh, in a sense, from a different angle, the opposite angle. He says, you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In 5 verse 1, he warned us against legalism, and in verse 13, he warns us against what's called libertinism. What is that? Well, a libertine is someone who has no breaks and no boundaries. Um, A free spirit who does his own thing. And Paul is warning us against that. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So, so what does he mean with that word flesh? Well, um, that word comes up often in Paul's writings, and it has a range of meanings. It can have a neutral meaning in the sense that flesh is what, what covers your skeleton. In that sense, the word is not bad because the body was created good. It will be raised in glory. So flesh in that sense is, is what you could call a, a theologically neutral word. It can also refer to humanity in the sense of our mortality. So um, in that sense, flesh gets the nuance of limitations that are imposed by sin, and that already becomes a little bit more negative. And now, on the far end of the spectrum of negativity, uh, he uses the word flesh as human existence apart from God. And that's how it's being used here. Human existence in rebellion to God, human existence in opposition to God, human existence in its sin against God, that's the flesh. And that's the same nuance that you get a little bit later in the passage, which we will, Lord willing, come to eventually when he talks about the um, works of the flesh. Verse 19 He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, these are the works of the flesh. This um, This is what human nature is when it stands in rebellion to God. And in Ephesians 2, verse 3, he says, we, were, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So flesh, in that sense, is all that is bound in sin, all that rebels against God, all that stands under his condemnation and judgment. That is flesh. That's how he's using the word here. The flesh is not just body. The flesh is everything in us that is sinful, that is self-centered, 
that willingly indulges itself. And there's no limit to the flesh. Look, look at how evil people can become in only 70 or 80 years on earth. You don't, it doesn't take long. 70, 80 years and, and people accumulate a lifetime of evil. Think of, think of the really evil people in world history. Joseph Stalin, Hitler, of course, others. But maybe in your own life you, you have also come across people that were evil. It didn't take long for them to get to that point, did it? If you give people half a chance. So when Paul writes, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he's saying don't fall back into that sort of slavery again. And the word opportunity is interesting here because it points to motivation. When you see an opportunity, it, it, it means that you see a combination of circumstances that you can't exploit. That, that's what that word means. And so opportunity requires a certain predisposition, a certain mindset in order to be able to see it. And some people hear this call to freedom from Scripture and they, they see this as an opportunity to indulge themselves in sin, to not take the law of God seriously anymore. And when they do take that opportunity, it reveals something about where their mind is at. These are people who have never understood what true deliverance is about. What true freedom is about. See, true freedom looks away from itself altogether. In that sense, it's totally separate, totally opposed to the secular use of the word. And maybe we haven't always understood that. This can be especially difficult to grasp when you're a young adult. Sometimes we think freedom is freedom from what God commands so that you can do what you want as long as it doesn't directly contradict God's commands. Isn't that how we often perceive freedom? And that's not what it is at all. True freedom is a total reorientation of motivation. You're not in the center at all anymore. So true freedom will always be outward focused, always oriented towards others in some way. And that makes sense, does it not? How else will you know that you're truly free from self-centeredness unless you're able to consistently look out for the needs of others? It makes total sense if you think about it. It's a very practical thing, freedom. Martin Luther put it best in his classic formulation. He said, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Paradoxical, but true. So, in this freedom, we're called to serve each other, called to look out for each other, and that whole idea is totally counterintuitive. And you know what's even more striking about this passage? This, this word serve in um, our text, through love serve one another, this word serve is actually not the word that you would expect here. 
It's actually derived from the Greek word for slave. There's a different Greek word that is normally used to translate serve. And we get our word deacon from that same Greek word. But here, the word translated as serve is actually related to the Greek word for slave. That's exactly the sort of thing that people in the Greco-Roman culture and ours would avoid. In fact, to them, this would be even more countercultural than it would be to us because these were people who knew what slavery was. It was all around them. It's estimated by historians that at the peak, at its peak, um, Rome itself, in any case, and possibly the empire, was two-thirds composed of slaves and one-third of free people. So, so for Paul to write to free people and to use this word to make his point is, is really something that um, would have been counterintuitive to them. But the point is that such a servant is attentive and responsive to the needs of others and lives to fulfill them. In other words, this person does not live for himself or for herself, but is oriented towards others. Now, maybe by secular standards, that would seem to be a profoundly limiting kind of life. But why would you think that? It depends on what, what your presuppositions are, right? If, if you think that the goal of life is self-determination, if you think that even subconsciously, then yes, then this will be limiting. But as we've already seen, this self-determination is not, is not what true freedom is about. And in any case, to, to serve each other through love is a command. There are two commands, two imperatives in our text. The first one is, through love, serve one another. That's a command. The next one is, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So this command is applicable to all Christians. There's no exceptions. It's not just that some people serve while others are served. It's a command to all of us. Everybody serves. Everybody has the ability to do this. Everybody has the command to do this. Why? Because when you serve each other, that's when you most closely reflect Christ. That's when you most closely reflect his self-giving character. Because he really did put others first in the most profound way possible. He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant or slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we serve in this way, we image Christ. But it's hard. It's a struggle. We're great at helping our mates. This is the, the, the big Australian concept of mateship, isn't it? So, dear, you help each other out. It's a big thing, especially among men. 
It's admirable. But men, how good are you at serving your wives? Are you able to serve her with no hidden motives? And wives, you invest so much into your family, so much into your husband, so much into your children. You're so good at nurturing, but it's not always recognized, is it? And when it's, when it's not recognized, are you able to continue serving anyway out of love as Christ's image bearer? When it's hard, it's hard to do this. It's hard to do it once sometimes. It's hard to do it consistently. We struggle. And when we struggle, we learn something about ourselves and about God. Because then we see how much sanctification still needs to happen in our lives. And more importantly, we see how great Christ is in our own failures. We're always pointed to Christ. If we think about it, biblically, we're always pointed to Christ who is so great, who gave himself completely, who did it lovingly, and who continues to do so today. Even though he knows each day before we do, even though he knows ahead of time what our failures will be and our shortcomings and our sins, he continues to love us and continues to call us to true freedom. And when we understand that, that's when we are able to continue growing in service to one another. But the opposite of that is true as well. If we don't understand, we will devour each other. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between where you get to have it both ways. If you look at, at the general trend, it either goes one way or another way. So we continue with verse 14 here, thinking about this idea in our second point, where Paul writes in verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? Well, to understand this verse properly, we need to take a step backward and look at our relationship with the law in general. And many of you would be um, aware that uh, traditionally in Reformed theology, the law has been divided into three parts. It's a, it's a kind of a, um, a, a structure that we impose on the law in order to be able to think about it and to talk about it. It's often been divided into the civil law, pertaining to the nation of Israel, the ceremonial law pertaining to its sacrifices, and the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So in, in Romans 10 verse 4, Paul writes that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. In other words, all of it points to him. The numerous ceremonial regulations surrounding the priest's and their sacrifices actually depicted his service and his sacrifice. They were fulfilled in his life, his death, his resurrection. As Paul wrote in Colossians 2 verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance remains in Christ. So in that sense, there is no reason to go back to the ceremonial law. It would be a step backwards if we did that. And Christ also fulfilled the civil law of Israel. That is to say, his people are no longer tied to the nation of Israel. Remember, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Israel essentially ceased to exist as a nation. But now all who believe in Christ can be part of his people. But they're not bound by these civil laws of the nation of Israel because in its biblical form, that nation has ceased to exist. Of course, there is the modern state of Israel, which is connected. But the biblical nation of Israel ceased to exist after the destruction of the temple. But then the question becomes, what about the moral law, the Ten Commandments? Of course, all of the law of God involves a moral aspect. You can't really separate them. So in that sense, this threefold division of, of uh, civil, ceremonial, and moral is, is, is artificial. It should not be understood too strictly. But what does it mean that the law is fulfilled through love? Remember again, it can never be said too often, we are not under the law anymore. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. When we're joined to him in faith, we are no longer under the law. As the Belgian Confession puts it so nicely, he imputes to us all his merits and as many holy works as he has done in our place. So in that sense, we are no longer under the law. But that does not mean that the law is now irrelevant. Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The moral law was crystallized in the Ten Commandments, but it has always been God's will. The law does not stop being an expression of God's will. And that's the problem. Some people think that it does. They think as long as you love each other, you can ignore God's law. But without God's law, how will you even know what love is? If you fill it in with your own ideas, guess what? You still put yourself in the center. Then you're no further than if you had no faith at all. So what does he mean? when he says that the whole law is fulfilled in love, because that still makes it sound like the law is no longer necessary. But that's not what he means at all. The point is that the ultimate purpose of the law is love. That's the fulfillment. When you love God and your neighbor, you have fulfilled the purpose of the law. That's what the law was meant to make us do. The law was never intended as a system of rules that stands on its own. The law has a purpose. The purpose is love. When we obey, we fulfill the purpose of the law. The purpose has always been love, even in the Old Testament. In fact, this quotation itself comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Leviticus is probably the most law-oriented book in the Bible. When you truly love your neighbor, you fulfill the purpose of the law. That's what a text means. You know what's most frightening about that? There's no limit. Think about it. There's no limit to love. Love runs way deeper than just keeping the rules. See, the law in that sense made it easier because with the law you just get told what to do and you do it. And as long as you keep all of them, 
You can have a kind of outward righteousness. That's the sort of thing that the Pharisees were so good at. They even tithed their garden herbs. But they didn't understand this goal of the law, to love your neighbor. One of their rabbis, Rabbi Hillel, put it this way. He said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbors. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary. But that's not the same thing as loving your neighbor. That still basically puts yourself in the center. All you, all you have to do is not hurt others, and then you've kept the law. In fact, that sounds remarkably much like the slogan for Google, do no evil. Right? That's basically what it is. So you don't even need to have faith to, to do this. This is not what true freedom is about. Do you understand what true freedom is? Because if you don't, you will devour one another. That's what Paul warns them about in verse 15. He says, but if you, if you bite and devour one another. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And here we can see and let it be noted by us how important it is to get your theology straight. This matters. If you don't understand what true freedom is, at some point it will come out in your own behavior. That can happen on a church-wide level as well, and that seems to have been the case in Galatia. This church has gone feral such a wonderful Australian world word. They have gone feral. They're biting and devouring one another. The church father Chrysostom said that bite represents a moment of anger, but devour is ongoing and calculated conflict. And these people are doing both. They're biting and devouring one another. It sounds like they'd split into groups over this false teaching. Maybe they were accusing each other of not being true believers. But, but the conflict aroused by these false teachers probably lit something that was already under the surface anyway. Many churches, also Reformed churches, experienced this during the COVID period. It sounds funny, doesn't it, to say the COVID period as this historical thing which is now past. It sure didn't feel that way a few years ago. But that's what it was, the, the COVID period. And in some churches, there were bitter disagreements over the nature of COVID and vaccinations, and the relationship between state and church. Why was it so bitter? It wasn't the issue itself, because if it was, we would have expected the same outcome in every church. But that was not the case. In some places, these issues were probably just a catalyst for problems that were already hidden under the surface. They were invisible until COVID brought them up. From that perspective, controversy in a church can be helpful. Not for its own sake, but because it makes us ask these questions again. And it brings out opportunity for growth. It makes us ask that same question. Do we really understand what true freedom is? Have we grasped this? And if we don't, then it points us back to Christ. 
In that sense, God really does work in all things for the good of his people, even in conflict. Does not show grace. In the end, true freedom is a gift, a gift that will always result in service to others. It's one thing that the world can never understand. At the beginning of the sermon, we noted that Dr. Ken Elliott had been released from captivity. The ABC reported on that, as did others. But the ABC clearly took great pains to leave out the fact that Dr. Elliott and his wife were motivated by the Christian faith. The only time his faith was mentioned in the article was in a statement that the family put out. The reporters themselves said nothing about it. They made him look like he was just a, a general kind of a humanitarian worker. His love is something that they grudgingly admire, but they cannot and will not accept that it is truly motivated by Jesus Christ. They don't want to see Christ, not even in his image bearers, not even a little bit. You, however, were called to freedom. So do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And when you run into your own flesh, turn to Christ. Because there's forgiveness in his name, redemption in his love, power in his spirit. And when you believe in him, you will be truly free. Amen.